0: This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Darrell Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Bob Westerfield, who is a UGA Extension Horticulturist and Extension Horticulture Coordinator. Um, Today we're going to be talking about gardening basics, but I think, Bob, people want to know what an extension horticulture coordinator or horticulturist might do.
2: Um, Well, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm still trying to figure that out, Darrell. (laughs) It's it's kind of a hodgepodge of everything. Uh, As the coordinator of the department uh, for horticulture, basically, I'm sort of the liaison to uh, all the guys that we have in the department that handle everything from fruit to ornamental plants to bedding plants. Um, I try to pass on information to them and and keep everyone kind of up to speed. My job specifically, um, I work a lot with vegetables for both consumers as far as how to grow them. And also for the last several years, I've worked with small um, farmers, like basically um, small grower operations, mom-and-pop type vegetable farms. I've really enjoyed that, along with uh, doing a little bit of fruit work as well. I work with uh, fruit trees, small fruits, and so forth.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, A lot of people are thinking about growing their own food but don't come from a gardening background. What's a good way for them to get started?
2: Well, you know, I I think probably one of the best things to do um, would be to visit their local county extension office. Uh, There's just an array of information that's available there. Um, Almost every county in the state, and and for that matter probably through the country, um, has a local office or a branch of the University of Georgia. And uh, with that, they can pick up brochures. There's some trained individuals there that might be able to do some soil testing to get them started. Um, I would do as you know, much reading on the subject as I can, and don't be afraid to get started. Uh, you know, you might not want to grow the most complicated things, but you can certainly you know start small, and that would be my 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 first tip is don't overdo it. Start with a small area, maybe with a couple of raised beds, and kind of move up from there.
1: I'm, I'm a big fan of starting small, too. Um, I think a lot of people think that you have to have an acre to garden in, but you can garden in raised beds, you can garden in containers. What do people need to think about, um, what do they need to have for a healthy vegetable garden?
2: Well, you know, I think it all boils down to uh, the soil. Um, that is the key. You know, if you're growing a tree or an ornamental shrub, you know, you've got years to kind of get it right. It's nice to plant it correctly to start with, but if you don't, you still have a little bit of time to fix it. With vegetables, they're a little thoroughbreds. I mean, we've got to get them in the right soil with the right pH adjusted properly. And you're looking at something, you know, if you're looking at a radish, it's 28 days to harvest time. You know, corn and okra and squash, maybe anywhere from two to three months. So it's a very fast turnaround, a very rapid time. So you want the soil to be perfect. And since you and I both know um, a lot of the soil around the state can be real sandy or heavy clay, or somewhere in between, sometimes we have to work that a little bit by adding better things into the soil, i.e., like organic matter, and then going from there. So, making sure that your soil's proper and ready to go, I think, is the key.
1: Now, people that have never gardened before, tell them what organic matter is. Okay. Well,
2: organic matter, basically, it's naturally occurring. It's just that we don't see a lot of it. It's basically microorganisms that are in the soil that have chewed up everything from plant debris and branches that have fallen to literally dead animals and other things that get onto the soil. Um, Over time, it breaks down into a nice, dark, earthy compost. Naturally, we don't see a lot of it in the southeast because it volatilizes. In other words, it It's taken up in the atmosphere. It leaches through. Um, Oftentimes we have to add that. So it's good, earthy, organic-type soil. Basically the dark stuff that you might see would look a lot like potting soil or something like that you buy in the store. That's what we want to add into our naturally occurring soils.
1: Unless you happen to be one of our listeners who has naturally wonderful soil. I was recently in Wisconsin and we went down a couple of feet and it was all loam. It was just absolutely amazing. I think uh, I would move there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I realized why it was so easy for me. I started gardening, I had my first garden when I was three. And I'd helped my mother and my grandmother garden, or they allowed me to <clears throat> pretend I was helping anyway. And it was so easy then. I could dig into the soil with a trowel. And, of course, we can't do that here in most parts of Georgia or in a lot of other parts of the earth. So if per- does a person have to go out and buy compost in a bag?
2: You know, there, it really depends. Again, like you said, there are some people. In fact, um, where I'm kind of beaming out from right now on this radio, um, you know, it's, I've got a farm in Pike County in Georgia, um, and, and we're blessed with some pretty good soils down here on this farm. In fact, on the side, my wife and I grow vegetables for the market and so forth, and it is some really sandy kind of organic-y loam soil, um, and it just happens to be an area that's really nice. However, if you go back over to where the house is, and uh, we've got some rocky clay soil like a lot of people deal with, yeah, in that case, uh, I mean, it's probably never going to build up. Even if you plant what we call cover crops and green materials, it's probably not going to build up enough. It would help to purchase some organic matter. Um, you know, you can do it a couple of ways. We've got farm animals, and we've got horses, cows, so we can stack up manure and allow that to break down and compost. We can add that into the soil. Um, you can certainly buy, you purchase um, topsoil, or, you know, black cow, which is sort of a commercial composted manure, those type things. But, you know, it takes a lot. Um, What I like to see on a soil that's never had any organic kind of added to it would probably be three to four inches added in across the top. And, you know, you've got a larger garden that could add up. But, yes, you can purchase it. I would look to try to find it in a bulk area, you know, somewhere you could buy it bulk at a cheaper price. Unless you've got a really small garden, then you could probably use the bag material
1: yeah I know there usually, if you look in the yellow pages, um you can find something that says landscape supplies, and people can usually find compost mixes there. Now, so one of the things that we ha- that I've seen here um, in our bulk with our bulk suppliers is a compost made with peanut hulls. Is that safe to use?
2: It really depends on how, the, yeah, how they processed it. Um, you know, in past literature, we used to say to kind of avoid peanut hulls, because um, they can be problematic with nematodes. Uh, nematodes are little eel-like um, creatures that will get down in the soil, and particularly like a root-knot nematode will penetrate the roots of good plants oftentimes, tomatoes, okra, and create little nodules or little bumps or warts on the roots that eventually hurts the plant. Uh, peanuts are notorious for having nematodes, and oftentimes if you're using the holes, you can bring the nematodes into your garden. However, you know, if they're properly composted and processed and it's peanut holes mixed in with other things, uh, I don't think there'd be an issue with that. But fresh peanut holes, you know, out of a farm, I'd probably avoid that.
1: Okay. And is there any way you can tell whether it's been properly composted or do you just have to trust the seller?
2: I'll be honest, you know, if it's it's broken down so much that you really can't even recognize your peanut holes in there, uh, you're probably good to go.
1: Okay. That's, that's, that's a good thing to know, because I know some people have access to various types. Uh, up in Pennsylvania, it is more common to see mushroom compost. Out in the right. West, um, very often, you can get nice bales of alfalfa hay, which you don't have to worry about having been spread with graze on. Um,
2: right, and that's, that's a big issue. That's a good one you brought up. you got to watch the herbicides on the manures.
1: Yeah, make sure that you know, if you're getting horse and cow manure, make sure you know what they've been eating. Um, we've had a couple, quite a, several guests, including some who absolutely who, who admit that they should have known better, that have used horse manure from an unknown source, and the horses had been eating grasses and hay that had been sprayed with a uh, persistent herbicide, and uh, nothing came up in their garden but corn. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's a very common
2: thing for me as, as one of the vegetable specialists. I do a lot of diagnostics. Um, I look at you know. County agents will send in samples, what's wrong with this or whatever. Many times we trace it back to herbicide damage, and and folks will say, well, I didn't spray anything. But, you know, they use some fresh manure that they got from the farmer down the road or wherever they got it. Uh, Those manures stay viable. In other words, they stay active. Even as it goes through the system of the animal, um, it can last sometimes four to six months. And even though you may have the plant survive, you know, tomato, pepper, whatever, it shows a lot of torquing and twisting and, and ultimately will knock out the production. Uh, that's one problem. The other thing I'd watch for is, you know, again, like you said, it's nice to know the history of where that manure came from. Because if you've got a farmer that's just chock full, his pastures of weeds, uh, nut grass, and things like um, crab grass, I can tell you what, I, as an animal owner myself, they'll eat anything that's in front of them. And all that weed seed will come through that animal, and it'll be turbocharged when it's in that compost. So uh, you're going to have that in your garden, too. So it just comes out a little better when it's fertilized.
1: Yeah, the, the worst weed problem that I ever got was with a load of horse manure. It was back in the days when we didn't have to worry about the herbicides, but I had forgotten how inefficient horses were at digesting. And uh, I, I'm, I still get Johnson grass every now and then. So that's oh, the good yeah. thing to warn people about. Now, what about straw in gardens? Is straw safe to use, or is that also likely to have been treated with well, herbicides? Yes. That's, that's a good question, and straw is kind of a general term because you
2: know that we have a lot of different straw potentials out there. I mean, there's millet straw, there's wheat straw, and I'm assuming that might be what you're talking about. There's rye straw, oat straw. Um, I have for years, because we just have access to it on the farm, I uh, used a lot of wheat straw, and I have not had a lot of problems with that, but I know the history of it and the pureness of the stand. You can get some really weedy wheat straw. Um, that not only is going to bring noxious weeds into the garden, but you're also going to see a lot of the weed itself uh, germinate, which you know can be an issue. Uh, on the other hand, you know millet is sometimes bailed. Millet is a warm season crop. Uh, they feed it to cattle and so forth. And I've used it before, but you have to be real careful because if it ever goes to seed head before they harvest it, um, you're going to have millet in your garden. In fact, I got some out there now. So um, you just have to kind of be careful with it. You know, if you're going to use a straw, what I often like to do is put a, if you don't have a huge garden, a layer of newspaper down around the plants first, maybe about three layers thick, kind of a, you know, circle or, or down the line of the vegetables. That gives you a little bit extra weed barrier, and then put the straw on top of that as an organic mulch and allow the two to work together. It usually does better than just one or the other.
1: Do you know whether millet and rye and oats are grown with any of the persistent herbicides? I know wheat tends, tends to not be. Um, most of those are treated primarily with pre-emergent
2: herbicides um, that would not be that much of an issue in the in the like the vegetable garden.
1: Okay, so they don't have to worry about it like they would, say, fescue hay or Bermuda right.
2: hay. Right, exactly.
1: Okay, that's all good things to know because our listeners come from all over the country and different products are available in different areas. I, I know up north, down here in the south, we use pine straw for ornamentals. Uh, right. up north, people wouldn't even consider it. Uh, exactly. that it's, it's not something that they, that they see around. It's totally different right. for them. Uh, we're going to have to take a break in a little bit, but I want to talk to you, when we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about, we mentioned extension, and I don't know that everybody knows what extension is, and then how do people know where to put their garden? What do they need to consider for that? Um, and... Yep. I want to talk. I want to talk to you also about soil testing. We can do that very briefly. Is is it absolutely critical that people get a soil test, or is that mostly just here in Georgia?
2: Sounds like a plan.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, we'll come back. We're going to take a little break now. I want to remind you that we're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show, and. Uh, We're talking today Gardening Basics, Gardening 101. So I hope that we'll cover everything. If you don't, remember that you can reach us through our Facebook page, and we'll get your questions answered. We'll come back right after this.
3: This is Michael Gonneau with Insight to Israel. Every day the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, Ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out.
0: are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quickstakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now.
4: Membership. Are you an IHC member? Access to the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's Breaking News industry trends, expert blogs, and networking with IHC's industry-wide member community. IHC membership puts you at the focal point of the dynamic health and benefit industry, allowing you to join the conversation and collaborate with industry stakeholders and your peers. Your IHC membership includes a subscription to Healthcare Consumerism Solutions magazine, Healthcare Exchange Solutions magazine, annual publications Healthcare Solutions Superstars and Healthcare Solutions Outlook. A Free white paper, and much more. Sign up as a free IHC member or $99 premium IHC member today at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com.
0: This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Bob Westerfield, um, an extension horticulturist. And, Bob, tell people what extension is. I think that may be a term that people don't know other than in, like an extension handle on their on their clothesline or something like that. I, I don't know. So well, tell some people, people think a, the, yes, that's, a great, that's a great question. Some people think extension, you're the people that hand out
2: money, right? You expend money to us. I'm like, no, that's not quite us. Uh, Yeah, a lot of the uh, states have got land-grant colleges, um, and basically what that is, they instituted what they call the the Extension Service. The Extension Service is a bunch of agricultural-trained individuals, uh, most all college degrees, that basically are there to assist people, particularly in the counties. Uh, We have what are called local county agents. They're part of whatever land-based or land-grant institution is in your state. Um, you can usually look them up in the phone book under the local government, under county extension service. Um, and basically, again, that's, that's folks that you can call on for agricultural, horticultural needs. Many folks have heard of the term 4-H before, which is the youth programming component of that. That is also part of the extension service. They work with children, everything from doing things like um, you know archery and outdoor things to learning about plants and nutrition. And we also have the FCS, Family Consumer Science, which works with things like canning foods, food safety, obesity, you name it, kind of along the health line. So that is available in most states, um, and and quite honestly, usually it's locally available. You just have to do a little bit of checking and so forth. But those folks are out there to help you, um, particularly if you're interested in growing vegetables in almost any state. You know, they're going to have very specific information You can certainly, I'm with the University of Georgia, you can Google our information, but you know, the thing I have to caution is I'm writing that usually specifically for Georgia or to some extent the southeast. You know, if you're way over there in Oregon or Michigan, you know, a lot of what I'm saying might not quite work out for you.
1: Okay. Um, And and even if they don't have a local county extension agent or county office, they've, most of the States have bulletins that will tell them when to plant, when their last frost date is, good varieties, and things like that. So people don't have to be completely on their own.
2: That is correct. Uh, Yeah, you know, these days everything's kind of computerized, so there are a lot of bulletins out there. I would kind of stick towards looking at the – I know there's a lot of garden sites out there. You know, you might want to start looking at the EDU sites, the education websites, that have got kind of non-biased information, you know, not trying to sell a product per se – uh, and that would probably give you some really good information. Some states have got regionalized offices. They might not have a county agent in every county, but they'll have one that covers, you know, three or four counties from what I understand.
1: Okay. Right before the break, I mentioned that we are going to talk about what, where do people need to put their vegetable garden. If I'm a big beginner vegetable gardener and I've never grown a garden before, what do I need to look out for?
2: Well, that's a great question. That's usually kind of how we start our programs off, you know, when we're do, talking about the basics is, you know, okay, where could you put the garden? Well, you know, some places are obviously better than others. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind is you better have good sunlight. You know, a lot of people would love to have vegetables growing, but, you know, they've got a very shady backyard, and, and that's going to be a challenge. Vegetables are sun lovers. You know, you want to get six to eight hours of pure sunlight per day, if possible. The other thing is I want to make sure – Uh, it's close to a water source. You know, you might be lucky and be able to grow without any kind of irrigation, but in most cases, you're gonna have to be able to water that garden. So it's gotta be somewhere accessible to irrigation or to water. And the other thing is, having been gardening now for 40 years and and tried it every which way, uh, you want it to be close by to the house. In this, you know, at work, I want it close to where my office is, where I can check on it regularly. It's easy for a garden to kind of get out of hand or, you know, insects and diseases to kind of come in there. You want it to be very convenient to you, not something you have to drive far off to go check. So you want it close by. In most cases, you know, a homeowner is going to have that.
1: Okay. Um, so what about, you said, six to eight hours of sun. What, is, is that the deal breaker if they don't have that You know, I I know people that have
2: grown with less sunlight than that, but they have at least filtered sunlight coming through. Um, The leafier type greens like lettuce and turnips and collards, uh, broccoli perhaps, it can normally survive on a little bit lower end on the light scale. But if you're going to try to grow tomatoes and solanaceous crops like peppers, eggplants, and that type of stuff, you're really going to have to have the sunlight. Uh, They're just going to try to stretch and get leggy, and probably not going to thrive.
1: I can verify that (laughs) my garden used to be in in full sun, and it was absolutely—it was huge enough that we had to, you know, had to use get it plowed. Or later on, I bought my husband a a tractor with a big tiller on the back, Um, and now my garden is pretty much reduced to containers in the driveway. And I noticed this year that the tree, even the in the driveway area, the neighbor's trees and some of ours have grown up so much that when I came down to it, I was getting four hours of sun. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's really why my tomatoes didn't do as well as they might have. It makes it it challenging. (laughs) It doesn't help either that that I don't have any air circulation in my garden. And I think if people are going to have a garden, if they can avoid having it surrounded by a wooden board fence, that would be a good thing. You you know, know. that's...
2: That's a great point, particularly, you know, um, I don't want to pick on the southeast since that's where I'm located, but, uh, you know, we've got every kind of disease and insect that's known to mankind uh, that can affect our plants. And uh, we're, we're in a subtropical climate, and uh, the more air circulation, and I always preach that, that you can get around those plants yeah, and not keep it, you know, stagnant, uh, the better you're going to do. You really want the air to flow. You know, if you're out in the west more where it's lower humidity and so forth, you might get away with it. But if you're down anywhere near, you know, a place where it's going to be humid, And subtropical, Uh, yeah, you want to try to stay away from, you know, shrub borders and trees and things like that. Try to get as much airflow as you can through there.
1: Especially if you're growing tomatoes because they are so subject to pests and disease. Um, Do you think that, have they become the most difficult vegetable to grow? I know that they're the most popular vegetable to grow. They're definitely probably one
2: of the most popular Um, And it really depends on where you are in the country. Uh, Right now, I'd have to say, yeah, tomatoes, you know, if if I just look at my volume of calls and questions and photos that come in with, you know, with concerns, uh, tomatoes probably definitely top the chart because there are just so many things that can jump on them. But I'll tell you, a close second to that, at least kind of flying around in the southeast right now, has been just uh, squash. Um, You know, squash has been very difficult to grow lately because of a lot of reasons, but primarily. The squash vine borer and the squash bug are just rampant, and they're very difficult to control. So anyone who's, you know, grown any type of summer squash, zucchinis, or whatever, probably knows what I'm talking about, that you're going to be dealing with those issues. So, yeah, tomatoes, squash, definitely problems.
1: Yeah, the squash, we used to always laugh because people, you know, would have so many zucchini squash that people would run from them when they'd see them coming with an arm load. And that's yeah. just not the case anymore.
2: Um, if, I can tell you... Yeah, you're right. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Has anything been done to figure out why, you know, it used to be that if we planted an early crop of squash here in Georgia, um, we would avoid most of the pests. Has any research been done to show why the pests are coming in earlier and earlier? Yeah, and that's a great question, and, and I think it, it's. we just actually had a big
2: IPM program, Integrated Pest Management Program, on Friday for growers, and that was discussed by one of our uh, coworkers actually over in Auburn, but, uh, you know, one of the things is I think there's just, I mean, it's a good thing and a bad thing. There's been such a surge in, um, you know, home gardening that so many more people are planting things. And I think what it has done, in a way, it's it's kind of opened up the window for a lot of these insects to multiply. So while it's a good thing we're growing, you know, we're actually putting more food out there, it seems like for some of these very host-specific pests like the squash bug and, squ- and squash borer. Um, and, and, you know, early planting can sometimes get away with it. But what we're finding, too, is these bugs are becoming more and more resistant to very traditional pesticides and things, and so they're able to withstand, you know, sprays, and they're just cyclic. They're going to be around for more than one cycle. So even if you plant an early crop of squash, um, you know, you're going to contend with that thing all the way through the growing season. So I think it's an evolution to some extent of some resistance by the insect, and then just having more opportunity because there has been a huge surge, you know, in gardening that I have seen over the last several years.
1: Well, I I guess that's true in some respects, but I remember, you know, 30 years ago when everybody had their own backyard garden, and then, you know, in the 80s, I guess, fewer and fewer were gardening, and now people are gardening more again. So that's got me really puzzled. Do we have any... um, is there anything on the horizon that might be helpful for us?
2: Um, you know, we had an interesting fellow um, that, again, spoke from Auburn the other day, and he and I'm going to be trying to test this, but uh, he talked about using, and I've always heard about it but never really did it with any type of earnest, but uh, he was talking about using trap crops. Trap crops are basically uh, when you're planting something that's not necessarily what you want to harvest to eat, but you're putting it out there to attract the pest insect, in this case, he was talking about leaf-footed bug, which is a huge problem in the southeast, but, you know, stink bugs, squash bugs, squash vine borers, you find out what they really like to feed on alternative to what you're growing. You plant a lot of it out there somewhere off to the side of the garden. They come into that first, and when the population builds up pretty high on that trap crop, uh, the, the trap crop, you actually treat that. You're spraying an insecticide to kill the population of those pest insects out. In the case what he was talking about was squash, uh, I'm sorry, leaf-footed bugs, which basically um, kind of is in the, um, the stink bug family, they, they get into a trap crop. In this case, he was planting sorghum, which is a grain-type crop. They love to go to that. They were getting into the sorghum, and then they would be treated with an insecticide. Over at the garden site, you know, where, where leaf-footed bugs could attack tomatoes, okra, and many other things, they didn't have to spray much because it was all being knocked out on the trap crop. So I think that has got some potential. And I'm going to be working with a study on that, hopefully coming up this spring, and I, and I hope it does work.
1: That's interesting because when I was growing up, trap crops were were just part of the normal thing that we did. And well, it, it's interesting. Pretty... <laughs> I, I guess it's because for a long time our pesticides really did work, and we didn't have to worry about things like that.
2: Absolutely, and, and Daryl, you know, as I do, um, sometimes it takes you know all this research and science and stuff just to come back to what's been going on for about a 100 years, you know. Like, gee, we can do this, and it works pretty well, and, you know, our forefathers have been doing it for 200 years. So sometimes we just have to come full circle and say, uh, you know, we need to do this. One interesting study we did at the campus this year um, was we just inundated our squash and other type plants with beneficial plants, uh, primarily coloring flowers, zinnias, things like that, buckwheat, which blooms pretty prolifically, and we brought in tons of predatorial um, you know, beneficial insects by planting these attractors, and it seemed to help. I mean, we didn't completely dissolve the problem, but it does help when you can plant color in your garden and also beneficial crops like buckwheat, which, again, is going to bloom and bring in a lot of pollinators and also beneficials.
1: And buckwheat is wonderful to cut down and turn in or cut down and even just use it as a mulch later on. It is. I, uh, I don't Mm-hmm. I used to grow quite, quite a bit of it, and um, just for that purpose, and because I'd like to see the, the bugs and the butterflies and the bees come around to it, too.
2: Absolutely. So. If you got deer around, they're going to find it, too. Of course, they might eat every part of your garden, but they love to eat buckwheat.
1: <laughs> well, fortunately, um, I have a f- fenced yard, and they have not jumped over the fence. I think they go to the neighbors, because it's Very. easier for them to do that. Uh- um Tell me about a little bit more about some of the other research. Do you have anything else that, that was fascinating to you this year? We've got just a couple of minutes before, or a couple of seconds before the break.
2: Uh, yeah, I think the really cool thing is uh, over at the Griffin Campus right now. Um, we've done some really cool raised beds. Uh, we tried different depths of raised beds, all the way up from three feet to one foot, to see what you know the the difference would be. And also we tried growing in pure compost. So this is basically com- commercially composted soils. That came out of North Georgia, and we tested different volumes of them, and, and you oh, know the findings good. are pretty interesting. Uh, I
1: can't wait we- to hear what you found out when we come Absolutely. back right after this break.
0: Quick stakes. That's. At Peachtree Ear Nose and Throat Center, they provide better quality care. They believe that excellent medical care is a right and not a privilege. They are concerned that the current economy has forced people to sacrifice their health. They have therefore reduced their prices to make it more affordable. They will continue to provide state-of-the-art care. They continue to believe that patient care counts above all else. Peachtree ENT Center, concierge medicine without the concierge price. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Call their office at 404 591 9100 to make an appointment or for more information. They are located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road, Northwest, Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. This is America's com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and today I have Bob Westerfield with me, and he's an extension horticulturist at UGA. And Bob, right before the break, you were telling us about some of the new research, and the raised bed research in particularly just just fascinates me. Tell me what you found out.
2: Well, we've always known, you know, raised beds are an excellent way to grow vegetables, Uh, particularly, you know, if you don't have a lot of area. Um, You know, doing raised beds, gives you to some extent a better drain soil. You can use soil amendments and, and you know in, in full you can use all soil amendments and have a fairly pure soil that's free of weed seed at least for the first few years. Uh we got together with a company up in North Georgia that donated a bunch of compost to us. And this is basically um, you know vegetable kitchen scraps from restaurants. They had green materials, landscape materials all churned up, composted and cooked into a nice dark rich humus or, or, or compost. Uh, They delivered us a semi-truck load of this stuff, and, you know, we started mixing it in with other things like manures and things in our raised beds, but we also grew it as a pure amendment, a a total raised bed of this stuff. And we actually had phenomenal vegetables this season in our raised beds. Uh, We did this completely organically, so all of our organic, um, our our nutrition was derived through organic products like blood meal, chicken meal, those type things. And in any pests we encountered, um, you know, we used organic products on that as well. We watered everything through drip irrigation. And I guess what we learned was, you know, that the really deep beds actually seem to do the best, although you have to really, really, when you're going with something as pure as compost and growing in it, uh, have to really watch the water on it. We had to water our beds almost every day to keep things thriving. But um, we're still working on it right now. We just switched into the winter crop, and uh, interesting to see how that, that goes.
1: Now, I know, for sure, surely our West Coast listeners right now aren't going to want to hear water every day. Um, <laughs> and that's one of the benefits of having, you know, one of the benefits of having clay soil, as difficult as it is for me to garden, that clay soil holds a lot of water and a lot of nutrients. So in a dry year, I don't have to worry about it too much. Yeah. Bob, what, um, what um, when you were... Talking about the different heights of the raised beds, did you find one or another height that worked best? Um, we have a
2: history on this site uh, because we, we grew it in a traditional you know bed and we were doing corn trials. And we had some sedge weeds. I'm not, not sure all the viewers are familiar with sedge, but uh, some people might know the term chufa, which is a wildlife planting. That's actually a type of sedge. But it's a real nasty, tenacious perennial weed, and you just don't want it. So if you never heard of it, that's a good thing. But anyway, we had it in that field out there where we built these raised beds. And what we found was, you know, when we had the three-foot beds and so forth, absolutely no weed problems at all. But we had the one-foot-tall uh, raised beds. That sedge actually was able to germinate up under all that soil, and it over time eventually pushed its way right through that soil and came out. So, um, you know, that, that would be one consideration, <laughs> that you have to have a good blanket on top in order to uh, kind of knock that, those type of weeds out.
1: Did you put anything like plastic underneath the beds, or did you just uh, do them open and fill them up with compost or whatever? We basically
2: tilled them up and just went old natural. Yeah,
1: and if I had to, on you know, hindsight, maybe putting
2: some type of a plastic or, you know, we didn't want to put plastic, because we want to make sure we had great drainage, but, you know, a weed fabric of some sort or textile fabric probably would have been the way to go on that.
1: I can tell you if you're ever planning on using a textile fabric and you have bamboo around, forget it. It doesn't work. It just welds <laughs> the stuff right to right to the ground. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, I, I didn't even plant the bamboo that I have. It was in in containers, and it rooted through the containers. And it, I've been battling it for years and years and years because of that. Now, you mentioned that you were growing in pure compost, and I have a friend who um, lives in Ireland, and this year she filled her raised beds with or, with raw organic material. And we've always been taught of course, that we shouldn't use raw organic material. We should always compost it first. And what she did was use just about everything. She had, you know, twigs and leaves and green material and stuff like that. And into those she put um, pure compost in just like bucket-sized places in her raised beds and planted. And I have never seen anything as lush as that in my entire life.
2: You know, I, I'm beginning to change my attitude on what you can grow vegetables in because I'm just about seeing it all now, and um, I, I can imagine that that would work. I think it all comes down to basically the moisture management and knowing the key on how to water it and keep it kind of adequately moist but not overwet. Um, I've seen people grow plants, wonderful plants, in just bar, uh, just in bales of hay, and I know you've probably have heard of that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen people grow vegetables right out of a bag of potting soil. Uh, and actually planting into the bag itself. So it can be done, but, uh, you know, it takes a little bit more management, In, in the key is fertilizing and watering, you know, and trying to figure out exactly what that ratio should be.
1: Well, and I guess if you're brand new to gardening um, and you don't know what all of us have been taught for the last 50 years, you could just go and break all the rules and be successful. Uh, you never know how it's going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, when I was at a Master Gardener regional conference, and they were talking about growing vegetables in child, kids' waiting pools filled with um, a fertilizer solution, you know, base, really hydroponics 101. That was an idea that I wouldn't have considered. Right. Even though now, hydroponics is is very, very popular, and the science of it is getting down there. Right. Now about- tell me about this this compost company. Um, is, do they sell compost commercially? Is it somebody can order it? They do. Um,
2: I, I'm trying to think of the name. I think it's called Foothills Nursery Products. I think their they're, uh, actually operation is up in Habersham, and they're kind of just kind of getting started into the business. They're actually working on um, like growing mixes now too that you could potentially. They're they're kind of refining it to be able to actually do transplants and you know seeding and so forth for greenhouses. But um, there are more than, you know, there are several companies out there, and they do sell to the public. And to me, I think it was fairly reasonable when I looked at their rates compared to everyone else's. Um, we were fortunate to get 80 tons of material. You know, we had a semi truckload brought in of stuff. Um, but, you know, you might wind up spending several hundred dollars on a large bulk of this stuff. But when you consider how many bags, you had to buy them, that would take, it's probably overall much cheaper. And I think folks can ask around, again, get with the local county extension offices if you have one and and see where perhaps bulk stuff is sold. Um, Even some county municipalities actually compost trimmings and things like that that they pick up, and that might be a viable option for, you know, working into the soil.
1: Now, about the, uh, I know a number of people have been concerned about coney composts, especially folks apparently in the western states where they had a problem with trichlorure from grass clippings. Is that something we need to worry about?
2: You know, it really depends. Again, it, it's going to always boil down to the history of the product, um, and if you have any opportunity. You know, and you get fresh stuff. It never hurts to kind of continue to compost it a little bit more if it's a bulk matter to allow it to sit and maybe, you know, turn it or flip it a little bit. Um, you know, track up here is a, a nasty herbicide that, not nasty, but in the sense that it has a long persistence and certainly would bang up vegetables pretty bad, so you don't want that to happen. Um, and it might be that, you know, you want if you've got some product and you're not unsure about it, um, I would probably plant a little container in it. Maybe put it, I'll tell you what, the, the best plant to put in there is put a tomato in there. If there's any problems at all, the is going to be the first thing to pick it up. They're basically what we call the telltale, telltale plant. And if there's herbicide in there, you're going to know in about, about two weeks or less. <laughs> so that's what I would do.
1: That's a good thing to know. I remember when glyphosate first became popular and uh, people were bringing tomato plant samples into the office. And even though they hadn't used the glyphosate um, any, you know, very close to the plant, the plants were affected. Or if they um, used it, you know, a, a three weeks earlier. And that right. kind of surprised people. So, yeah, it, they turn, as you'd say, they turn and twist and tell the tale, don't they? Well, um, they do. Absolutely. Another, pla- another question that I've come across from people is, with a municipal compost, is there danger of bringing in a d- disease into your garden?
2: You know, um, we normally would suggest when you're composting materials um, – to try to leave the disease-type things out of them. It's not that that disease might be killed when it's in the compost process, but it's probably better off not taking the chance. So if, you know, you have a bunch of tomatoes and peppers that you pull up, for instance, you know, have been just chock full of thessarium wilt or early blight or something like that, that might not be the best thing to put in your compost pile. Uh, Or, you know, if you had a, you know, other type specific disease or nematode problems, you know, and you're pulling that up and putting it in the compost If you do the ideal job of composting, you know, the pile, it might knock it out, but why take the chance? So, um, you know, again, if you're controlling what's in that compost pile yourself, uh, I wouldn't put any disease things that I could help it in there.
1: Okay. Next scenario, what if people get municipal compost and people, because in several states, including Georgia, you are not allowed to put um, plants in the trash. They have to go to compost. And so is there danger from the municipal compost? It's just one of those,
2: it really can't say. Um, Depending on the age of how long they've worked that material and composted it, I would say, you know, probably biggest chance that everything will be fine with it. But, you know, if it's a fresher material, and it depends. You know, if, if you're talking about something as, you know, we're using this in the garden, vegetable garden, and it's a very specific disease that maybe is... Um, prone to only get on ornamentals and trees, it's probably not going to be any problem at all. But if it's something that's a generalized anthracnose or something type disease that could indeed jump on something else, yeah, and if it's fairly fresh compost, it's possible that, you know, it would still be viable. But, you know, it's hard to say. It's just one of those you might want to test a little bit of the product out first to make sure it's going to, you know, not give you issues. And and the the other thing goes, you you might get it from that source this year, and you go back next year, and it's, you know, it's a completely different compost, so it might not be exactly the same.
1: So if people are looking at municipal compost, and I know it's very tempting because it's free, they should probably look to make sure that it looks more earthy rather than having sticks and twigs in it, huh?
2: I think that's a great point. Um, yeah, I want to try to get the most broken down. By broken down, we mean the kind of compost-looking or humus-looking product out there. If, it's still, you, know, if you can recognize the stuff in there, uh, you might use that as a top mulch. But I would rather have the stuff that looked like basically pure, dark soil.
1: And can people start a garden, I mean, if they think they want to plant next year, is this a good time to get started with it?
2: You know, I would do a couple of things. Um, We we talked briefly about soil testing, but a lot of the county offices will either come out or you can bring a soil sample to them. Uh, Going in the area that you plan to plant, this would be a good time to take random soils out of that area and have it analyzed. That way, if the pH, which is basically the alkalinity or acidity of the soil, needs to be adjusted, this gives you plenty of time to do that because it takes several months to adjust that. So, yeah, testing now, soil testing. Also, be honest, if if, if you have a new area you've never plowed up or tilled up before or used a shovel, I would go ahead and, if it's dry enough and not too wet, go ahead and turn that soil over right now. Um, If you've got some fall leaves coming in, you know, that are falling off the trees, that could be tilled into that soil and broken down, but exposing some of those elements that are in that soil would not be a bad idea, particularly if you've got some grubs in there or other type issues. It might actually help in the springtime.
1: And certainly in the spring, you're so busy and you get so eager that you want to plant that maybe you're going to do a little bit less good of a job in doing your soil preparation. At least I know I am. You know, once I, you that exactly. first warm day in spring and, you know, I want to garden right now. We'll talk you know, about that and some more about garden preparation and um, I'd like to know a little bit more about what people can do this time of year because uh, of course some of our listeners are way up north but we'll be back right after this break
0: Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick quicksteaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's stakes. Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona immigration law case, the Obama eligibility cases, the NDAA illegal detention issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Darrell Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Bob Westerfield, a UGA Extension Horticulturist, and we're talking about getting the soil ready for next year's garden. So, Bob, what might people be doing? You said well, you don't re- over the soil. Yeah,
2: I mean, you're actually breaking the soil right now, particularly if it's a new garden area. Let's expose some things that are down in there. Uh, one of the things we're actually working on today, um, we're going to be planting some cover crops, and cover crops are simply something that's going to be a Temporary planting, usually of an annual type nature, to hold the soil. It also begins to build the soil as that material gets broken down and eventually tilled in. It adds that organic matter that we talked about. Um, and we don't just plant non-edible cover crops. We plant edible cover crops. We mix, we're gonna mix. we actually going to mix some mustard and collards and turnip seed together and spread that out as a cover crop, and it will actually be harvestable. So we can harvest it, we can eat it, and it actually holds the soil. So that's something right now you could be working on. Pulling up plants, you know, as the summer begins to wind down and has wound down, um, don't just leave all those old plants out there. Begin to pull those up. You know, if they're not real diseased or whatever, you can put them in the compost pile. Otherwise, kind of take them away and dispose of them. Cleaning up and sanitation goes a long way to helping you next year in the vegetable garden.
1: Yeah, some of my worst disease problems have been from just you know you get to the end of the summer and you're just over it especially when it's been a disappointing summer like like some of them have been on the east coast with so much rain you just want to say i don't even want to see it but that can get into trouble can it
2: i know the feeling yes um
1: and and then you know a lot
2: of people are like well i'm just done with it well well don't be a hundred percent done you know pull that crop out that summer crop Kill that garden in because a lot of these insects, disease, and bugs are going to overwinter. They're going to spend the winter in those old plant debris that you had out there. So pull them out, kill them in, chop them up, and like I mentioned, do a cover crop, which will kind of preserve and protect that soil through the winter time. For me, it's kind of year-round adventure. So we're we're in the process right now of putting fall garden in. Um, we're planting all your kind of cool weather crops like. Everything from lettuce to broccoli to cauliflower to Brussels sprouts, and it's, it's kind of a never-ending saga for us.
1: You're a little bit, you're quite a bit farther south than I am, and way farther south than some of our folks can. What can people up north be doing now? Well,
2: it, more than likely, they would have had some of their winter crops are uh, probably producing right now. Um, yep. They probably already have had them in the garden, uh, and they may be harvesting things like you know broccoli and. And um, all the all the what we call traditional winter type crops. So they're probably ahead of the game. Um, you know they just like us. You know we're, we're, we'll be no different. We're just going to be behind them. Um, they need to be looking at all the different things that could be out in that garden. Uh, you know the cabbage loopers and things like that that love to get in and, and play havoc with the winter crop. That needs to be looked for disease type problems. Um, and you know they still have time. It's not tremendously cold up north right now. Um, if they haven't done it, they can work that garden as long as it's not too wet and plant a cover crop. Um, they can still get things like wheat and clover oats to germinate this time of the year. So they should have no trouble, and that would be nice, you know, addition to the ground uh, while they're waiting for the spring to come back.
1: I used to like to plant a fall crop of um, of annual rye that did a nice job for me and i would rotate one year i'd do rye annual rye next year i'd do clover and of course the secret to both of them is to cut them down before they reseed don't do what i don't do what i didn't do (laughs) one year you know i guess we all make mistakes as gardeners bob you mentioned um about tilling up your area that they're thinking about gardening in um what about weeds that are already in the soil okay weeds that are already like Bermuda grass and things like that?
2: Right. You know, if you have a choice, um, I would try not to plant where I have Bermuda grass because it is a very tenacious perennial turf grass, but it can be a weed when it gets in our vegetable garden. Uh, but, you know, if it's an area that you say, hey, i got to plant it here, I don't have a choice, uh, whether it be, you know, anything like bahia grass, Bermuda grass, whatever type of weed you may have, um, you know, depending on whether you're organic or not, that would, you know, if, if you're organic, you're probably going to want to try to keep tilling it and let it re-sprout and till it again and try to knock out as much of it as you can. Uh, if you're not an organic-type gardening-type situation, I would probably spray it with the glyphosate or, you know, the trade name we see sometimes is Roundup or Cleanup, and there's many other trade names. Uh, spray that down thoroughly, kind of burn it out a little bit, and then uh, go ahead and till the garden. And, and that will probably get you a long way started towards, um, you know, some weed control in the springtime.
1: Um, when if people don't want to put a cover crop on, you mentioned leaves. Should they leave the leaves whole, or should they chop them up?
2: You know, you know it depends. Um, I, I think I prefer to kind of grind them either through uh, some type of a chipper, or you know, if somebody's got a long tractor, long mower. You can run them over. Uh, you want them to kind of break down eventually. If you put them on whole, I've noticed, uh, and you put like a you know foot layer or half a foot layer. They tend to kind of just get mealy and soggy and almost makes what we call an anaerobic or lack of oxygen situation, and that's not real healthy. So I think it's better to kind of chop them up a little bit personally uh, and then till them or work them into the negative soil in the garden. And uh, I just think it's better that way.
1: A lot of people have access to free wood chips from the tree companies. Is that good to use in the garden? Um, you know, it, we
2: have a bunch of that stuff at the station where I work in Griffin, uh, and we use it primarily in the walkways of our garden um, because it's not completely broken down and it's, you know, pretty woody and you can still obviously see the the, the, the wood structure in it. It's not the greatest thing to till into the soil. Uh, the reason is it's not extremely broken down into that organic-y soil we talked about in most cases. Um, and what it does is, is it would, it'll work eventually, but in the meantime, Um, It absorbs a lot of nitrogen into the breakdown process. As those microorganisms begin to chew on and dissolve those little wood products, a lot of nitrogen is used up. And so if you try to plant into that material, you're going to really have to supplement it with a lot of extra nitrogen. Otherwise, your plants are going to look lethargic, kind of weak, yellowish. So it's not a really good soil amendment. As a type top dressing or mulch, it's okay. Okay.
1: I had a friend that used to have a wonderful garden, and what he'd do is he would put wood chips down the middle of the rows, between rows, every spring. And then the next year he would pull those up, because after, you know, being there in the middle and getting walked on and broken down, they would be a really nice soil amendment, and then he'd pull them up onto his raised beds the next year. So that might be something that people could do.
2: Absolutely. That sounds like a wonderful idea.
1: Now, how about composting wood chips?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, how do how would people do it if they wanted to kind of get a jump start on it? Um, well, I kind of do it at my house, just by a static
2: pile doing nothing. Um, we had a tree company, I just came down the road. I live in out in the middle of nowhere, and they were clearing power lines and stuff. So they just had you know truckloads and truckloads of these chips, and, I, and they just you know a lot of times they want to dump them somewhere. So I said, well, just dump them out here on the side of the yard. And um, so I've got piles and piles. And if you look at them, they kind of look like wood chips, but you get on the tractor and in the bucket and start lifting into the pile, it's it's pretty much like soil down in there. So it is composting itself. If you've got wood chips, though, and you would like to speed that process, um, you could put them in any type of a traditional composter, whether it be a barrel composter or, you know, like a triple bin composter, anything that will basically hold it. And what you'll have to do is keep it moist, wet, you're going to have to add some green material into it, like fresh grass clippings or, you know, clippings from your shrubs. And then maybe add a little bit of fertilizer to it to speed it up and keep it agitated. You'll have to turn that pile frequently, and it'll break down a lot faster. But, you know, because it is kind of a solid type thing, I would guess it's going to take a good six months or more before it breaks down.
1: Even under ideal conditions, how long have you been? How long has your pile been there? Oh,
2: I've had it there for two years, and uh, I huh, still go okay. in there with it. The, yeah, I mean, I'm using it slowly, a little bit here and a little bit there into the garden, so uh, it's wonderful. And, you know, if that's not unheard of, um, you can check around with the power companies, or if you've got a large tree company, like a tree surgeon company or something, oftentimes they got piles of this stuff. And, you know, I've seen them try to sell it, but oftentimes they can't hardly give it away, so you might get a good access to some free mulch if you check around.
1: That's a good tip for people, because I know you know the economy still hasn't recovered all that well, and a lot of people Correct. don't have a lot of money to spend on gardens um Don, you mentioned composting what's the best is there one best type of composter that people should use it It really depends on I would say it depends on how much effort someone's gonna put
2: in uh you know if you're like me and there's not gonna be a whole lot of effort done, uh you know just a single pile where you throw everything in there and basically leave it be will work perfectly fine. But if you want to speed up the process and really get some compost quickly, you probably need to have multiple bins. For, for something that's really cheap to put together, um, I've built several with pallets, old wooden pallets that you sometimes can get for free, um, basically using wire and strapping them together and making three-sided bins out of them and then putting three together. And basically you put fresh compost in one side, and as it starts to break down, you keep turning it into the successive bins, and it works very well. Um, I know you're familiar with it, but using some kind of wire structure in maybe a four-foot hoop of some sort, you know, cow wire, dog fence wire, uh, does a pretty good job of holding leafy-type materials for composting, and it works great. And there, there are commercial products available. The only thing I noticed with the commercial composters is just the volume. Uh, they're not going to have much volume to them, and you're thinking, oh, gosh, i got a 55-gallon drum of compost. Well, if you've ever done it before, by the time it's ready, you know, you got about three handfuls of compost when it's ready. So I like to go on a little bit larger scale so that I have something to work with when it's over with.
1: Yeah, I, I used to be a major composter, and I followed all the rules, and I um, turned the stuff every couple of days. And I would get so excited when the soil thermometer would, you know, get up to 160 degrees. That compost was really cooking. And Absolutely. then I got old. <laughs> it it was it was really it was a fun thing to watch the process you know and really do it according to the books and mix my layers of greens and my layers of browns and and keep it moist and turn but you know my nature has been doing this for thousands of years And so finally, I decided what I was going to do. I do have a bin, a wire bin, just to keep it, you know, sort of in one place. And I move that. It's you know, hog wire, I guess, two by four inch mesh, and I move it around periodically to different parts of my garden where I want to have compost the next year. And I start about this time of year with, you know, running the lawnmower over the leaves. So that gets, or I will start pretty soon anyway, running the lawnmower over the leaves so that I've got the last grass clippings and leaves in there first. I dump those in, and then all winter long I just put in, you know, coffee grounds and little food scraps, vegetable scraps. Excellent. And Bob, tell people what they shouldn't put in their compost well what you should put in
2: I think is what you said um, you know any type of leafy type greens you know kitchen scraps as far as lettuce celery you know anything coffee grounds are fine uh, You know, certainly yard trimmings and so forth we mentioned not to put in diseased plants when you can help it uh, what to avoid are any type of really fatty type foods we don't really put meats in the compost pile you know your pork chop bones and things like that just give them to the dog or get rid of them uh, we don't want to attract rodents in the pile also, domestic-type manures, you know, dogs, cats. I know you said something know you were dealing with your cats a little while ago. Uh, those are There are some transmittable diseases from them that we really don't want that manure going into the compost pile. If you've got, you know, uh, what we call barn animals like horses, cows, goats, that's fine to use that manure. Uh, that can actually go into the pile itself.
1: Okay. Thanks a lot, Bob. You've given us some wonderful tips, and I hope that... The- our listeners will get to their county extension office. We have to go this for right now, but we'll be back next week on America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'll be putting up a link to the National Extension Service right up on our Facebook page. Remember that you can always ask a question on our Facebook page or through America's Web Radio. You can link to us from there. Thanks a lot for being with us, Bob. We'll see you next week. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Ms. Darrell. You're welcome.
0: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.